Grace Family Church of Rhode Island presents Word of Hope, a sermon series with Pastor Luciano Cozzi. Welcome. The Word of Hope sermon series is a ministry of Grace Family Church of Rhode Island. It was instituted to bring sound teachings from the Word of God to as many people as possible. Our purpose is to offer you a message that is quite practical and contemporary that brings the Word of God to light in a way that makes sense in your daily life. As you listen to this message, it is our hope and prayer that the Lord will bless you through it and bring you hope, comfort, and guidance. And now, Pastor Kotze. Have you ever heard the saying that somebody can do all the right things for the wrong reasons? It is so true, isn't it? Why do we think, why do we do the things we do in life? And if we try to answer that question, why we do the things that we do in life, the answer points out our basic motives. We can do the things that we do because we want pleasure in life. We may do the things we do because we want freedom or autonomy or independence in life. Or love and intimacy may be the motivating force behind what we do. Other motives that are very, very common in a human heart are significance, reputation, respect and admiration of the other people, control, power, peace, happiness, comfort, meaning in life, success, things of that nature. Those are all motives that we have, or we may have, for doing certain things that we do. And of course, there are many motives that we tend to have in our human hearts that are not godly. On the other hand, there are some that are, or that may be godly as well. But whatever motive we have, it's all a matter of the heart. Because the scripture says, the heart is the spring, the source of all that we do and all that we say. Remember Jesus said in Luke 6 that, For there is no good tree which produces bad fruit, nor, on the other hand, a bad tree that produces good fruit. You recognize the tree by its own fruit. Men do not gather figs from thorns. They don't pick grapes from a briar bush. The good man out of a good treasure of the heart. Again, it's a matter of the heart and what springs forth from the heart and from the motives of the heart. The good man out of a treasure of his heart brings forth what is good and the evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth what is evil for his mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. Now, if we look at ourselves and want to discover what motives we may have in whatever we do, 
there are some key questions we ought to ask ourselves. And those key questions could be, whom do you love? Who is the object of your love? Self? The world? Jesus? God? Or who do we trust? If we trust ourselves, or other people, or God, or things, or possessions, or whatever it might be, we may discover the real motive that we have in our hearts. Another question we may ask ourselves, whom do we serve? Do we serve the self, a bottle, money, others, Jesus, God? Whom do we obey? And generally there, there are only two options when you boil it down to the minimum common denominator is either Satan or God. Whose glory do we seek? Our own or God? And where is our treasure? In this world or in Christ? To whom do we belong? And who do we worship? These are basic questions and those questions bring to our mind and our attention where the heart is really leaning to or directed to. And if we understand where the heart is directed, the direction of the heart, we can also understand our motives behind it. In this passage today, in Matthew 4, we see Jesus' example and how he was tempted, how his motives were questioned, tested, and how he succeeded in that test, and he passed the test beautifully and wonderfully, and we can learn a great deal from that. But as we approach it, we need to understand one major difference. Jesus Christ was God. He was fully God. He was also fully man. And so while in ourselves we find that we have a human nature within ourselves and the Holy Spirit abiding in us, in him we find the fullness of God's nature as well as a fullness of human nature. He was fully man, but also he was fully God. Our hearts, as humans, are different from Christ. Jeremiah explains it very well in Jeremiah 17, verse 9. He says, The heart is more deceitful than anything else. It's desperately wicked or sick. Who can understand it? And in the next verse, verse 10, the answer comes back and says, I, the Lord, understand it. Why? Because I search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. So here we find an important truth. God searches the heart to test our motives, to know where the heart is directed and where it's not. So the key or the solution of our dilemma is God. If our heart is directed to God and is placed on Jesus Christ, if we are imitators of God, as Paul was inspired to write in Ephesians 5, if we follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ, we're going to be okay. Because his motives were pure. Ours are not. How, how, how easy it is for us to switch from a pure and, and wonderful and holy motive to immediately right back to a selfish motive. 
We may be starting serving God in a, in a beautiful way, and then here comes along someone that says, man, that was an awesome job, and bam, pride comes in. And we are hit by that other motive. Because it makes us feel good. And because it makes us feel good, it may stimulate a hidden motive we may have in our hearts. Now, this passage that we just read today in Matthew 4 gives us a perfect example of Jesus Christ. And I think it's important for us to understand that example and, and be able to draw the teachings from that. The setting is given in the first two verses. It starts by saying, then... Then, then, what do you mean then? Then means right after his baptism. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, it seems to be a kind of an understatement, he was hungry. Well, I don't know about you, but if I go for a day or two or three without eating, I, I, I need some food. He went 40 days, and I imagine that when he says he was hungry, he was really hungry. He was starving. He had a real need. He wasn't just talking about the, the satisfaction of having some, you know, nice meal. No, he was talking about the necessity to support his life with some food. Now, it is no coincidence that Jesus' temptation immediately followed his baptism. Many of God's people have had similar experiences. Many people immediately after baptism, were, they were harassed and buffered by Satan because Satan doesn't want to let you go. When Israel was taken out of Egypt, what did Pharaoh do? He says, wait a second, what am I doing? And out he sent the army and he went himself after the Israelites to try to take them back into captivity. Kind of an image of what Satan does with us. Satan is not a, a good loser. Satan is a very sore loser. And when he sees us being snatched out of his grip, he's not very happy. And so he will try to snatch us back. And he will try to show to God that our motives are not right. That maybe we were baptized for the wrong reasons. Or we want to serve God for the wrong reasons, like he did with Job. And Satan went to God and says, oh, well, no wonder Job serves you. Look at all the blessings you give him. He has an ulterior motive. He has a wrong motive for doing the right things. He did not question that Job was doing the right things. He questioned his motive, his heart. Notice that Jesus was led by the Spirit, however. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? The Spirit led Jesus Christ into the wilderness... To be tested, to be hungry. Now, the Spirit does not test us. The Spirit does not tempt us. Satan does that job. But God exposes us, and He does it on purpose. He leads us to the point where we're going to be tested and tempted. And he, just like he did with Job, allows Satan to come into the picture and try to test, tempt us. So that our motives, the direction of our heart could be revealed. Now in Jesus Christ, was there any way that Jesus could sin? And the answer is absolutely not. Why? Because he was not just fully man. He was also fully God. And God has absolutely nothing to do with sin. So in his case, the reason for the test was not to find out whether Jesus would sin or not. It was to demonstrate to all of us that he wouldn't. And that he couldn't. 
Think about a bridge. One day, a, a, an engineer had built a bridge, and the day of testing came, right? So he started taking truck loads and truck loads of cargo and heavy weight and big, huge concrete blocks on top of that bridge. And he loaded the bridge, and then he loaded the bridge, and then he loaded it even further and even more. And somebody started thinking and says, the bridge is never going to hold a, a, a weight like the one he's putting on top. And so he went to the engineer and says, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to break the bridge? And he said, no, I'm showing you that the bridge can handle it. You see, Jesus was tested to show that he could handle it, not to show that he could break it was important that we would all understand that although he was tempted like every one of us, he could handle it. Because now we know that he can handle our life. Now we know that he can handle our problems and our temptation and our sins. He knows how to deal with that. Now, what was the temptation, however? And I think if sometimes we just read through this passage, don't quite understand what the real temptation was. And the temptation, in put in the simple terms, was to use his power, or better stated, his divine nature, to serve his human nature, to serve and fulfill and meet his human needs. And did he have a need? Man, after 40 days of fasting, he has a need. He needs some food to survive. That is not pleasure, it's a basic survival need. But would be appropriate, would that be appropriate for him to listen to that need more than God? Or better stated, would it be appropriate for him to use his divine power or yet his divine nature to serve his human need or his human nature? In essence, the question goes right back to that one lifelong question, who is in the center? Us, ourselves, or God? Who's serving who? Is God there to serve us, or are we there to serve him? In Jesus Christ, there was no fault. So the first temptation came up. The motive of that, that was being tested, is physical appetite, or the self. Who do I listen to first? My need, or God? That's in verse 3. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones be bread, or become bread. Now this statement, if you are the Son of God. Now, in the Greek, that statement assumes that that is a true condition. It's not questioning whether that is true or not. In a sense, it's almost like saying, because you are the Son of God, use your state, use your condition as the Son of God to fix your problem. In other words, Satan said, hey, you've got the power. Why don't you use it? Use it to do what? To take these stones and take them and turn them into loaves of bread. Now, let, let's think for a second. Did Jesus ever do that? Did Jesus ever come up and create loaves of bread or multiply loaves of bread to feed 5,000 people? Yes, he did. Was it wrong for him to use a miracle, to do a miracle, to use his divine nature, his power, to feed those people? Absolutely not. But at this time, it was a different scenario. It wasn't other people that needed his bread, the bread of life. 
It was not necessary for the gospel. It was not necessary for his ministry. It would have been just to fulfill and, and to meet a personal human need. In other words, God serving man. Or in Jesus Christ, the nature of God, the fully, full nature of God, serving the full nature of man. And that would have been sin. It's a matter of motive. Why did Jesus feed the 5,000? They needed it. Why did he refuse to feed himself? Well, he said it himself, why? But before we go to his answer to Satan, I would like to point your attention to the fact that there was another time in the life of Jesus when he heard people shouting at him and saying, if you are the Son of God, and that was when he was on the cross. If you are the Son of God, come, of God, come down from that cross. Save yourself. You see, again, if you are the Son of God, save yourself. Use your divine power to protect yourself, to meet your own needs more than our needs. And I tell you what, I ask you, what would happen if Jesus Christ had listened and used his divine power to save himself? He wouldn't have saved any one of us. He would not be the Savior anymore. And he would not be the Messiah anymore. So here we find Jesus Christ all the way to the end, all the way to the cross, putting you ahead of himself, putting God in his service to God. That's why he had come. That's why he had been born. He was born to die for us. And he was born to serve. He was not born to serve himself. He was born to serve the Father. He was born to serve you. He was born to redeem us. And so he did. And Jesus would have said, because I am the Son of God, I am here on this cross. Because that's my mandate. And that's what God does. But he answers Satan. When Satan in the desert, in the wilderness, by the way, did you notice something? Did you notice that the Spirit led him into the wilderness? And did you notice how after the crossing of the Red Sea, God led Israel into the wilderness. Jesus Christ was baptized. Right after his baptism, he was led into the wilderness. Israel was baptized through the Red Sea. And right after Israel's baptism, he was led into the wilderness. Jesus Christ was showing here to all of us that where Israel failed, he succeeded. Interesting, isn't it? Israel was tried and tested in the wilderness. Jesus was tried and tested in the wilderness. But Israel failed. Jesus didn't. Let's see his answer. He quoted from Deuteronomy. Every time he was tested by Satan, he quoted from Deuteronomy. And he quoted from something that was stated in the wilderness. At a time when Israel had failed. Here's what he said. Deuteronomy, he quoted a section of Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verses 1 to 6. Because Jesus answered to Satan and said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That came from a passage. So let's read the passage. Let's get the context of what Jesus was quoting to understand what he meant. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 1 states, All the commandments that I am commanding you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness. Notice, God has led you 
in the wilderness, just like Jesus was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, these 40 years, oh, that's interesting too, Jesus, 40 days, Israel, 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you will keep his commandments or not. So the purpose of God leading Israel through the desert was to test them, just like Jesus Christ. Verse 3, he humbled you and let you be hungry. Oh, do you see the parallel? It's, it's, how can we miss it? God led Israel to be hungry, using hunger to test their hearts. And now Jesus was hungry, and God was using hunger to test his heart. But then he says in Deuteronomy 8, And fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your forefathers know that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. And what had proceeded out of the mouth of the Lord, it says, go through this wilderness, I'll take care of you. And nobody knew that something like manna existed. In fact, it was the only time that God used it. It never been before, nobody ever saw that before. But the point and the test is, would Israel rely on the word of God or on the feelings of their stomach? Then he continues, says, your clothing did not wear out on you, neither did your foot swell these 40 years. Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was dis disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son. Therefore you will keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways and fear him. You see, this is a situation where the priority of the spiritual needs should be higher than our physical needs. And that points us to the providence of God. God says, trust me, I'll take care of you. And what do we do? Do we look at our physical needs and start griping and complaining against God like the Israelites did? Or do we trust the word of God and do what Jesus said, the man should not live by bread alone, but by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. God's people are never justified in complaining and worrying about their needs. Jesus, in fact, in Matthew 6, says that God knows our needs even before we ask him. He already has a plan for that. He has a plan to take care of those needs. And he wants us not to rely on those things and not to look at those things. He wants us to look up to him and seek first the kingdom and his righteousness. And then the side benefit of it is that God is going to take care of what we need. But if we seek those needs first, if that's our motive, you see, if that is our motive, then we're placing those needs ahead of God. We're not looking, seeking God first. We're seeking our needs first by serving God. God becomes a sidekick. God becomes the helper, the servant. We become the master, and that's idolatry. It's not right. So Jesus refused to put his human needs first or act independently from God. Rather, he fully relied on God for his needs and concentrated his efforts, his attention on doing the will of God. That's quite a lesson for us, isn't it? So we get to the second temptation. Two out of three now. In the second temptation, we find in uh, verses 5 and 6, the motive that was tested was personal gain. Remember, by the way, in Genesis, how Satan tempted Eve? 
Hey, did God take away some food from you? That was Satan's approach. I mean, Eve said, well, God has given us of every tree of the garden. And Satan said, no, not of everyone. He took away some food from you. Of this tree, he told you not to eat. The second thing that Satan said is, oh, no, you're not going to die. Nothing is going to harm you. Nothing is going to happen to you. God is just, you know, teasing you or something. Well, here with Jesus, he did something similar. He took him to the high spot in the pinnacle of a temple and told him, hey, you can throw yourself down. By the way, Jesus, do you want to live by the word of God? Hey, the word of God says that if you were to fall, the angels will protect you. You're not they're going to let you hurt, be hurt. So now Satan uses the scanning devices playing along with, with Christ and say, well, if you really want to go by the word of God, why don't you go by this word of God? Now, by the way, Satan misquoted that passage. He read all of it, or quoted all of it, except one statement that would be a qualifier. Because if he stated or quoted a qualifier, it wouldn't apply to that situation anymore. See, sometimes when people do that, they cut and paste the scriptures. They only quote the, person, the passage or the, the portion that is convenient for them. Beware of that, because that's what Satan did. Satan knows scripture and misquotes it. Beware of that. Let's not fall in the trap of doing the same thing as Satan does. Neither you or I would want to do that, would we? The pinnacle of a temple was about 450 feet up in the air. And that would have been quite a fall. Satan misquoted Psalm 91, trying to entice Jesus to test God. The point was, God is bound to serve you because he said that he will protect you. So why don't you use his word and test his word to see whether he does it or not? There are traditions that other people around that time were portraying themselves as messiahs and they were saying, I, I'm going to, one of them said, I will just say a word and all the walls of Jerusalem are going to fall down. Well, he went around, said the word and nothing happened. Another one said, I will uh, say a word and split the Jordan River. So he went out and said the word and nothing happened. Of course, all of them lost their following. But then there is a tradition, I don't know whether that is true, but there is a tradition that Simon the magician was so stuck up that he said, I can fly. And he did the same thing Satan tempted Jesus to do. And he leaped out in the emptiness and he splattered, killed himself and lost his following. Now, by the way, could that Simon the magician be deceived by Satan? Yeah. And when we go and give in and allow us, ourselves to be deceived by Satan, what is the result? He will let us splatter. Well, Jesus Christ didn't fall for that. And he quoted Deuteronomy 6, 16 back to Satan. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And Deuteronomy 6, 16 says, as you tested him at Massa. So there's a specific test that we're talking about here. And what was the, set, the setting, the circumstances? Well, that comes from Exodus 17. And Exodus 17, verses 1 to 7, say, says this. Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. 
and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test God? You see, Moses was pointing to the fact that they had been led there by God. And God said, I'll take care of you. So why are you getting upset now? Why are you not trusting him? Why are you quarreling with him? Although you're telling me, but the real quarrel is not with me, it's with him, with God. Verse 3, but the people thirst, thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to these people? A little more, and they will stone me. And then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people, and take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you will strike the rock, and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he named the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel. And Massa and Meribah are two words for quarreling and fighting against. And because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Okay, that, that tells us the attitude of the Israelites. It says, if God is among us, if you are the son of God, you see, if you really have that divine nature, said Satan to Jesus, the Israelites said, if God is really with us and among us, then why doesn't he serve us? Why doesn't he give us the water that we need? Why doesn't he meet our needs? And why doesn't it fulfill what he said he would do? The same attitude. Who is at the center? Who is, where is, where is the, the motive? The motive is fulfilling ourselves. Personal gain. But Jesus Christ did not fall for it. He quoted back to Satan that episode and he said to Satan, Hey, don't test God. We don't need to test God. We don't need to try to figure out. Like many people say, if God really loves me, why doesn't he do this and this and that? That's testing God. And testing God comes from lack of faith. It comes from a motive in the heart that is not pure. It's not for God. That person that says, if God really loves me, why does he, did he allow this to happen? The motive is not serving God. It's serving self and protecting self for whatever thing happened. Now, incidentally, did we notice that Jesus was exposed to that suffering on purpose because that met the will of God? And through that suffering, you and I can stand here today and learn vital lessons about eternal life. And about our hearts and about our motives. Would God allow us to suffer so that our ministry is more effective? Brothers and sisters, yes. The answer is yes. One of the most effective evangelists I've ever heard of was an eight-year-old kid with heart problems who kept going from surgery to surgery to surgery to surgery. And he spent most of his time in hospitals. But as he spent his time in the hospitals, he kept talking to nurses and doctors and, and introducing Christ to them. And God used him mightily and powerfully for these people to come to Christ. He was an excellent evangelist. But what made him such? His condition. And not just his condition, but the pure motive of his heart. He wasn't there doing that so that God, you see, God, I brought three people to Christ. Now you've got to heal me. 
No, he said, God, here I am. I want to serve you the way I am. Whatever condition you gave me, whatever situation, whatever is my sharing life, I will serve you with it. And you know when you, an eight-year-old kid does that, it still has the heart of a child. That motive is pure. And it's awesome. And it's beautiful to see. So we come to the third temptation of Jesus now. That also intended to test the motives. Now, these are not the only temptations that Jesus was exposed to. His whole life he was exposed to temptation, Scripture says. But these were particular one that he reported to his disciples and he let us, let us know because we need to learn from them. Again, the motive of this one, of the third one, is now power and glory. What was the motive in Jesus' heart? Was it to, to gain power, to gain glory, to, to, to promote his glory as God? Or not? Or to serve God Almighty? And how was that tested? Well, the devil took him into a high mountain, he says. I think this is figurative language. I think that it was no high mountain. It will show you all the kingdoms of the world. But in a way, the devil showed him all the things that he could take, he could gain in the world. And, and he said, I'm going to give them to you if you bow down and worship me. So now Satan stopped pretending and revealed the true motive of his heart. Now the true motive of Satan comes through. Satan wants to be God, and he wants others to worship him rather than worship God. He was also delusional. He thinks he's the master of the whole world. And he does have a grip in this world, but he only has a grip in this world because God is allowing him to have it for a while. But in his delusion, Satan says, no, I own the world and I can give it to you if you want me to. Just bow down and worship me and you'll have it all right here and right now. Does that sound familiar? You can have it right here and right now. Don't worry about the trouble you're going to get yourself in. Don't worry about the debt you're going to incur. Don't worry about the fact that we're going to repossess your car, your house, your, your bed, everything, you know. But just have it right here and right now because you are the most important thing in the universe. Well, Satan tried. Jesus didn't fall for it. The cards were right open, right on the table by now. And there's no way you can tell God to worship someone else. A lesson for us, because sometimes we expect him to worship us, to serve us. But once again, the temptation was for Jesus to act out of selfish motives. Hey, Jesus, you don't have to go through the cross. People can follow you right here, right now, without the cross. Thank God that Jesus did not fall for Satan's illusion, but responded with Scripture. And he said, get out of here, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Another quote from Deuteronomy, another quote from Israel in the desert as they learned that lesson. And as he says, get out of here, Satan, it's very interesting to notice that now he speaks from God's authority. And the verse 11 says, the devil left him. For that time, at that moment, he couldn't stay there because God said, get out of here. So isn't that interesting now that Jesus Christ, to serve himself, refused to use his, human, his divine nature. He would never put his human nature ahead of his God, godly nature or his divine nature. But now when that temptation is over, 
when he is no longer serving himself, he speaks with the authority of God and says, Satan, get out of here. And Satan has no choice but to leave. By the way, brethren, neither you nor I have that authority. Christ is the only one who has. God is the only one who has it. God is the only one who can set the boundary and the limit for Satan and says, this far you will go no further. You and I can't do that. Oh, Job would have loved to say that and say, Satan, don't take my health, okay? This is a boundary, a place before you. It doesn't work that way. It's God that sets the boundary. We need to accept the boundary. We need to know that there is a God who is an almighty God, who is a sovereign God, who is a loving God, who is a caring God, and he has promised that he will take care of us and we don't need to question his word. We just need to accept it. We don't need to tempt him. We need to follow him. We don't need to expect from him that, God, you've got to give me what I'm asking for. Because then we put the human nature ahead of him. Do we have faith? Well, I think that Jesus did all this by faith, didn't he? Faith means that we trust God. Faith means that we trust his judgment. Faith means that if God says, not yet, we say, okay. Okay, because we trust your wisdom. Okay, because we trust that you care for us regardless of what we see right now. Because faith is the evidence of the things that we don't see. If God always answered every question we ask him, if God always gave us everything we want, first of all, we'll be spiritually spoiled brats. But in addition to that, where would faith be? There would be no need for that. There would be no need for us to trust God. Rather, we would be angry and upset and throwing a temper tantrum and throwing a fit when God would not give us what we want. And that is not the kind of people that God is going to have in the kingdom. The kind of people God is going to have in the kingdom are the kind of people that say, God, we now have an eternity ahead of us, and it's all in your hands, and we know that it's going to be a glorious eternity because we trust you fully and entirely and completely. And by the way, you are the master, and I'm honored to be your servant. I'm not here for what I get. I'm here for what I give. I'm not here for what you do for me although I do appreciate what you have done, but I'm here to serve you because you are the master. That is the attitude that a Christian ought to have. That is the motive that a Christian should be moved by. That's the heart that we should have. But Jeremiah reminds us that our hearts are deceitful. Oh, we'll find all sorts of ways to reason around that. Oh, we'll find all sorts of ways to justify something else or something different. So let us be alert. Let's look at our motives and ask ourselves, why do we really do the things that we do? Do we look for signs? Do we look for God's miracles to prove and show that we are good or we are better than somebody else? Well, then we're asking God to serve us. What is our motive? Why do we do the things we do? It's a vital question. It can make a difference in a lifetime. So let us make sure that we check it out. And let's make sure that we look at the qualities that Jesus exemplified and ask also ourselves, not just why we do the things we do, but what can we learn from his example and the way he handled things.
so that we can compensate for the deceitfulness of our heart by the truth, and the truth is Christ, because he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so very much for the truth you give us in Christ. We thank you deeply and profoundly for the awesome blessings you place before us and before ourselves that we have before ourselves. But Father, we also ask you, please, to guide us in such a way that our hearts would not be here just for what we get. That our hearts would be motivated by a love, a love that we have for you, a love that is a response to your love, yes, indeed, but a love that moves us to serve you and not to be served. Give us a servant's heart, a heart like Christ. Fill our minds and our hearts with his pure motives. Give us a clean, a pure heart, Father, that we might continue to praise you forever, that we might continue to serve you forever, that we might continue to indeed be all involved and wrapped in you, because it's all about you. It's not about us. So we ask all this and we commit our lives to you and we ask you that you give us a faith that is necessary for us to respond to you with a pure motives and a pure heart. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.